Good morning, church family. Delight to have you. Isn't it cool to celebrate new lives in Christ? That's so good. I love that. Every time we have the opportunity to see God at work. So um, if you didn't get a chance to celebrate the Lord this week as you walked with him, this is the time to celebrate again as we think about all his goodness to us. Um, We're in Genesis chapter 16. If you turn your Bible open there, I had a person um, after the first service who said, I didn't know if you'd have the courage to actually talk about Genesis chapter 16, but it's right there in the Word, so we want to dive into it. It's a great text. I think it'll encourage you and hopefully sharpen you. Um, And so if you would turn there in your phones or iPads or your Bible, if you actually have one of these old school things that's got pages on it, feel free to use that. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter 16 is where we're at. We're in the middle of a series called Messy Faith. It it outlines the life of Abram and Sarah and the ups and downs, the struggles they had to be people who learned how to trust God, how to be dependent on him. It's been said, second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness and maturity and genuine spirituality that most of us ever encounter, waiting. Read through the stories told about biblical characters throughout the Bible, and you'll discover that every leader has to wait. There's a season, and some of them wait long seasons of their lives. Noah waits, and Job waits, and Ruth waits, all of Israel waits, the disciples wait, and we, we're told, even wait with long anticipation for the Lord Jesus to come back, God's people are told to wait. Psalms 27.4 encourages us, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. But it's hard, isn't it? It's challenging to wait for us. Why do we rush ahead? Why is waiting so hard for us? Why do we rush ahead of God, devising our own schemes for a future that we we can't even see? There's a host of answers for that. And I think that the fundamental issues are all addressed in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, which tells the story, the faith journey of three people primarily. Of Abram and his wife Sarah and Hagar, who we first meet here in Genesis chapter 16. 16. Our behaviors, they might not be the same as Abram and Sarai, right? We might not move to Egypt because we're running out of food and we can't wait on God to provide for us. But we can run ahead and look for greener pastures when things get hard and we feel like our lives are being challenged. And we might never tell people that our retirement-aged wife is really great-looking, so she needs to be named our sister and marry her off into a harem of Pharaoh. That might not be our experience. But we also know that really for us, we still struggle making compromises when we look at our fears as opposed to God first. Our fundamental issues, they're the same. And when you look at the train wrecks that occur in Abram and Sarah's life repeatedly, you understand something powerful going on in the word that should actually make us sit up and pay attention, try to hear and listen to what God's word is communicating to us. These stories told in God's word, they're not meant for our entertainment or stories that we can easily dismiss. 
And we shouldn't just look at these lives of Abram and Sarah and think, oh, yeah, they were just idiots. So, but not me. I wouldn't make that same decision, right? The truth is that we wrestle with the same things. And God is saying some powerful things about our faith in this text. So this morning we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 16. And it's an account that's going to make you question the moral compass of this couple. And it should certainly make you wonder, why in the world would God choose a couple like this that repeatedly make the same foolish choices and choices that are like, you stand back and think, really, did they really do that? And yet God chose them to be a foundational couple through which he's going to bless the entire world. They're they're part of God's great eternal plan, and he chose them. Isn't grace phenomenal? Isn't it amazing how God chooses us and chooses people just because he loves us, not because of anything that we have done or not because of our outstanding character or our, our competency, but because he chooses us. Now, we're going to read Genesis 16 in its entirety, and you're going to be tempted to jump to some conclusions and actually some judgment against Abram and Sarah. But try listening in to God's word first. Listen to what God does with brokenness and with sin. And think about the consequences in our own lives, your own life, my life, about rushing ahead. And think about just who it is that makes promises that he alone can keep. Genesis chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from having or bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai Abram's wife took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Verse 7. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she shall be called the name of the Lord. 
So, sorry. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Vir Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Barret. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The passage begins with an interesting twist. It begins by identifying Sarah as Abram's wife who had no children. Why? We, we already know that information. So the writer's making a point, apparently. God had promised Abram a son. That's Genesis chapter 12, the very beginning, verse 2. But in Abram's impatient and with his fragile faith, he adopted his servant girl's son named Eleazar, which means God of help. You find that in chapter 15, verses 2 through 3. However, God rejected Eleazar and affirmed, reaffirmed his promise to give Abram a son out of his own body. That's chapter 15, verse 4, we talked about last week. But 10 years later, Abram and Sarai are still waiting for the promise, and they're old. They're getting older. Uh, no offense, some of you who are in your 80s, right? But they're getting older. And they're struggling with the discouragement and disillusionment of infertility. Sarah had lived with the intense pressure of her culture, likely feeling the sustained weight of overwhelming shame. Right? Struggling through that. And she comes up with a, what she thinks, a decent solution to the issue. It's a cultural solution, apparently culturally appropriate. Sarah takes her Egyptian maid, Hagar, who Sarah most likely acquired on the fiasco of the second half of Genesis chapter 12 when they found themselves in Egypt when they couldn't wait for God there. And she comes up with the solution. That is, Hagar could be the surrogate mother. So Abram... Here's Sarah who comes to him saying, this is the Lord's fault, but I've got a solution. And Abram listens and accepts it. That conversation is wrong on so many levels, isn't it? it it's so wrong. Yes, God had indeed sovereignly chosen the timing for the promise to come about of the child. And he had them waiting and waiting, and waiting, and waiting. But he was doing it to test them, to deepen their faith, and to make a statement, I believe, about his power, his timing. Who could imagine this older couple having a child at that age? It would have to be God, and God alone who did this. He would have had to have gotten the glory for this act. And yet they struggled with this. And that strikes a deep chord in us. When we wrestle when we wrestle with our finances, with our singleness, with the brokenness in our marriages, when we grow frustrated with God's seeming inaction to solve the issues that we're wrestling with, what do we do? And these very things could be tools in the hand of God to teach us faith. And Sarah here, she allows her feelings to get the best of her, and she makes this tragic mistake. She comes up with this idea to have her 
husband, Abram, take Hagar as another wife and as a surrogate mother. And it seems to be an ancient variant on the expression, God helps those who help themselves. By the way, I've had people quote that to me, thinking that it was a biblical verse. God helps those who help themselves, right? The answer is no, wrong. That's not a verse. It's nowhere in scripture, by the way. And that was the struggle they're having here. Sarah, and in turn, Abram, got the question wrong. The first question we usually ask ourselves when we face overwhelming frustration is, what can I do now? We put on our fix-it hat, and we think about how we can solve the problem. Yet we should be asking, what does God want me to do? Not, what can I do to figure it out? But what does God want me to do? Two very different questions, aren't they? In Genesis 16, the tables have been turned in their marriage. In chapter 12, Abram's unbelief caused him to rush ahead of God and foolishly come up with a plan to pawn Sarah off as his sister. And that eventually made him agonize when Sarah's in Pharaoh's harem. And now here in chapter 16, Sarah's wrestling and struggling because she's just given her her husband to another woman and wondering what's going on in the tent. So... In chapter 16, there's a parallel to chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Both passages posing the question of how Abram and Sarah would respond to unforeseen difficulties and the two major promises God had made them for a land. And in chapter 12, they couldn't wait. They couldn't wait on God for their provision. They went running off to Egypt and got themselves in serious trouble. And now here in chapter 16, would they wait? Have they learned to wait? You don't have to wait for the answer, by the way, because it's right here in chapter 16. She enters dangerous waters, and she starts playing the blame game. Do you see it there in the text? First, she blames God. This is God's fault that I haven't had kids. He promised, and it's his fault. So she rushes ahead with her plan, blaming God for her inability to have kids. And, And then when she puts her own plan into action and it backfires because Hagar becomes pregnant, and then starts lording it over her, she blames her husband for it. It's his stupid thing that he's done. She starts playing this blame game, yet blaming is only a symptom of something wrong. It's never a solution. It never leads to health. It never leads to hard growth. It leads to foolish choices. And if you're in the thick of blaming others, it should be a flag for you. And we can't simply point to Sarah as a guilty party here. Don't let Abram off the hook. His passivity is a serious issue, I think. In fact, his response parallels Adam's response in the fall, Genesis chapter 3. It's also similar to Jacob's passivity at the hands of Rachel and Leah and their plans in Genesis 29 and 30. Just when the moment calls for Abram to man up and to be a godly husband of faith, he lets himself He lets his wife and he lets his God down. He says yes to Sarah's foolish plan. And no doubt doubt part of that is to appease Sarah and avoid the conflict. And being a man, no doubt part of it is saying yes to sexual temptation. Even as a man in his mid-80s, we never grow invulnerable to some sins, do we? We just don't. If Sarah's volunteering Hagar has her surrogate 
as her surrogate scandalizes us, Abram's passive compliant conduct here should be even more offensive. It was him, not Sarah, who, who actually heard the voice of God in his life, first leading him out of Ur. And Abram had no voice or divine command here or even a suggestion to misuse Hagar like he does here in chapter 16. He should have known better. He had been taught several faith lessons along the road already. And he had heard God's very voice speak to him and promise to him and to give him grace. And we just, we just thought about the great covenant that God gave him in Genesis chapter 15, showering him with undeserved mercy and grace and giving him promises beyond what he should ever deserve. And yet here he is once again, thinking about himself and not the Lord and not thinking about faith. So what's going on? Things are getting messy again, aren't they? At the beginning of Genesis 16, Sarah and Abram make at least four critical mistakes. First, they failed by doubting the promises of God. They failed by doubting the promises of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith it is, it's impossible to please God without faith. But they had no faith in God. They couldn't wait for him. I love the life lesson spoken of by Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China who's famous. He says, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And that may seem trite to you, but read his biography, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. It's powerful, and when you see this played out in his life, you'll discover how rich those words are. Yet Sarah and Abram, they wanted things done their way and their timing. Have you ever been in a similar place where you just got tired of waiting on God and he came up with a plan? Have you ever wrestled with the promises of God in your life? Am I the only one here? Abram and Sarah, they failed each other by relying on their own plan. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a statement many of you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. But that's exactly what they were doing. They didn't acknowledge him, and their, their path got really crooked. In marriage, we're to bless each other by encouraging each other's faith and helping each other wait on the Lord and if you are a single person, you've got friends in your life who are following Jesus, you operate in that friendship to encourage each other, to help each other trust in the Lord in deeper ways. And when you don't, and when you grow impatient together, it's a sure recipe that you're going to hurt each other, hurt people around you. Abram failed to test his wife's advice and counsel against the measurement of God's word. If your spouse or your friend, they suggest something that's opposing God's clear counsel or his promises in your life, then you've got to have the courage to stand up and say no, to reject that counsel. And that can be hard. It can be challenging. But you have to do that as a person who follows Jesus, who has faith for your own health, for the relationship's sake, and most importantly, for the glory of God. Peter's wrestling with this, and the disciples are. It's an event recorded for us in Acts chapter 5 where um, 
they're being pressured to no longer speak out the gospel and speak about Jesus. And at that point, Peter stands up and he says, we must obey God rather than men. That's the principle for us. You have to obey the Lord and what he has for you. Not someone else's opinion or your own desires. You have to be encouraging each other to measure your decisions against the word of God. And finally, Abram and Sarah, they failed to take their fears and their concerns to the Lord and to pray for God's wisdom and guidance. If they would have just said, Lord, we're so picking frustrated waiting. We've been waiting all this time. Sometimes the prayerless decisions we make seem so insignificant and harmless, don't they? But often it's these very prayerless decisions that come back to haunt us. If Abram and Sarah would have stepped back here and said, you know what, honey? Let's pray about that. Let's pray about Hagar and whether we should try to do this surrogate thing or not. What do you think would have been impressed on their heart by the Lord and his spirit? They would have never gone through with it. They would have realized that the outcome would have been disastrous. And this is a hard truth that I keep relearning, that God's people are often called on to wait regarding those things closest to our desires and dreams. The things that are closest to your heart are often the very things that God says, okay, that's the thing I'm going to call you to wait on me for. Why? Because I care more about your faith and I care about your comfort. I'm about developing you as someone who trusts in me through all the seasons of life. Come to me with your issues. So in the account of Genesis 16, we discover that Hagar gets pregnant and this bitter conflict ensues between her and and Sarai. And instead of leading his wife out of the mess, Abram dodges his responsibility and says, oh, you take care of it. And as a result, Hagar runs away and she finds herself as a young woman pregnant in the middle of the wilderness, vulnerable, victimized, not knowing what to do next. And she's there. What happens? It's at this precise moment that God steps in. And I love this part about the passage. In Genesis 16, verse 7, we're told that the angel of the Lord comes on the scene. Now, this is the first appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Bible. And there's a healthy debate about who this is, the angel of the Lord. But I believe The angel of the Lord here is the pre-incarnate Christ who is alive and well and at work in the world, right? Even in the Old Testament times. The text seems to support the conclusion. First, he speaks authoritatively in the first person. Look at the language used in chapter 16, verses 10 through 12. Second, Sarai identifies him as God, the Lord God. Verse 13 And later in Genesis, Joseph describes the angel of the Lord as the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Only the Lord can do that. It's chapter 48, verse 16. So if this is Jesus, the scene here of Hagar in the wilderness, victimized and vulnerable, and not knowing what to do next with this ugly history, having run away, She's at a well. It should remind us of what? John chapter 4. Right? 
John chapter 4, where Jesus goes to a woman who has a long history of being sexually used, and she's vulnerable, and she's got sin in her life, and she's at a loss. And what happens? The Lord God of heaven and earth comes and gives grace, gives mercy. Isn't it cool to think about who God is and how he treats us, how he treats Hagar in this moment? Psalm 34, 18 reminds us, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Just when all the relationship bridges had been burned up and Hagar is alone and by herself, God comes to the brokenhearted, to the crushed in spirit. And the key issue in this part of the text is what God does with Hagar. He actively seeks her out and he comes to her and has conversation with her. How marvelous is it that God chases us down just like he did with Adam and Eve and their story. And just like he does with Jonah and his story. Just like he did in your story and in my story. And is it humbling to know that God is far more interested in us than we are in him? What an amazing God we have. And I love how he begins the conversation. Do you see how the conversation begins? Hagar, servant of Sarai. Where have you come from and where are you going? That's a loaded question, isn't it? He's helping her with perspective and a sense of place. And I love that the Lord says, hey, I know you. I know you by name. I know your story. I know all about you. You didn't escape my notice or concern. Do you know yourself and Hagar's response, while it may be incomplete, is at least an honest one. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm running away. I'm going back to Egypt. That's what I'm doing. And the next message Hagar gets from the Lord is really a tough one to swallow. When God finds us wandering, it's often what he says to us. Return and submit. Oh, ouch, right? That's hard. That's hard that God would say that. And he says it to Hagar even in this moment of her life. Return and submit. Those two words we often resist when we're on the run. On the run from maybe trouble at school or work or our finances or broken relationship. Running seems like the right solution. But we have an instinct to run and avoid. However, That's rarely the solution God has in mind for us, running away from trouble. Now, I say that with a word of caution here. This verse does not imply that in a relationship situation when you're being abused, that you ought to stay and take the abuse. There are times when leaving is the only option left to us. But here's the message being spoken into Hagar's life and into our life, the underlying principle is that we cannot run to Egypt to avoid our problems. You can't run away from them. That's not how reconciliation takes place. That's not how God nurtures maturity in us and faith in us. Running away is rarely running forward, right? 
Hagar, the Lord says, I want you to go back. I want you to do the hard thing. Even though Sarah was the one that started this whole thing, I want you to submit yourself to her, to seek reconciliation. Whew, that's a tough word. Submitting ourselves in those situations where it's hard for us, it doesn't work in us. And then I love what the Lord does next. He gives Hagar this wonderfully unexpected promise. Hagar, though you're a servant, and though you've been abused, and though you're on your own, it feels like, I have big plans for you. You're not alone. I know you, I see you, and I'm going to make a family out of your child. Your descendants will be too great to number. Imagine that. And I'm giving you a son, and his name is going to be Ishmael. Ishmael, which means God hears or God has heard. This name would be a reminder to Hagar. Every time she whispered softly to her child or sang his name out, she would remember the promises of God. Every time the Lord of heaven saw her and spoke to her and knew her, she'd be connected to her child. And even when her son was really difficult, and she'd say, Agar, get over here. Excuse me, Ishmael, get over here. She'd be reminded once again of God's great promise in her life that he was present and she was not alone. In all those situations, she would recall God's intervention in her lowest moment. And she would recall God's mercy and promises to her. In response to God's mercy, Hagar does something you don't see anywhere else in Scripture. She names God. Hagar names God El Royai, the God who sees. You're the one who sees me. You're the one who knows me in and out. What a fantastically appropriate name she has for God, right? He's the one who sees us and he knows us. He knows you through and through. Then Hagar names the well where this conversation took place. She wants it to be remembered. She wants to remember every time she thinks about this place. And when other people come to this place, she wants them to learn the lesson, Bir lahai ro'ai, which means the well of the living one who sees me. The living God who sees me in the middle of cruelty and jealousy and irresponsibility and impatience and the abundant sin we find in this chapter who sees me, this despised slave girl, this God who shows me kindness when I've never experienced that like this. And from this point on, she would never forget what happened to her there. And perhaps that's the exact message that God wants you to hear this morning. Whatever baggage you came in with this morning, whether it was your own disobedience and sinfulness or someone else's sin that was dumped on you, You need to hear right now that the Lord God sees you and knows you and cares about you. He does. He wants a relationship with you just as he had with Hagar. He wants to invite you into new life, a new relationship with him. And you can do that simply by trusting the Lord, telling him that you believe. Believe that he loves you. That he's given his son, Jesus, for you. We trust him.
There's a tragic truth taught here in Genesis 16. There are some sins that will have lasting consequence in this world far beyond what we foresee. When Abram and Sarah, when they failed to wait on God, when they rushed ahead with their own solution, when they failed to follow God's best in their life, their decision resulted in historic consequences, conflict that we see even today, thousands of years later. Our sin has unseen consequence and should make us sober up when we grow impatient, when we want to run ahead and rush ahead of God's plan for us, when we want to disobey him. Before you do, take time. Think about God's word. Read it. Think about it. Pray about wisdom and patience and trust that the God of promises, that his promises are sure and trustworthy. And there's hope in this passage too. Despite all the wreckage, it's obvious, God's plan is not thwarted, and it never is. God was going to weave out his plan in history, and he's still doing that today with us in our lives. He sees Hagar. He understands and knows her and cares about her, and he's going to weave out his plan in her life and bring her to trust. I don't pretend to know the situation that's going on in your life. But I do know that you're not alone. I do know that there is a God who knows and sees and cares about you. And I do know that the Lord is teaching us all faith through waiting, not just waiting for waiting's sake, but waiting on him so that we might know him and we might trust him and find our life in him. And he's using waiting as a tool for us, an effective means by bringing maturity into our lives and helping us have a greater impact for his kingdom. Your faith, it means so much more if you would just wait and not seek instant gratification. Waiting is a good tool used by a good God. Waiting builds faith. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for uh, this great text and the challenge of it. Keep sharpening us and moving us I pray for those that might have come and who have never said yes to you, who've been running ahead and running away from you. God, this day, draw them into relationship with you. And for those that came who know you and yet have been struggling in their walk of faith, God, bring them back to you. Help them to have the courage to submit to you. I love you and thank you for your word. Christ's name, all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.